You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, May 16th, 2007, and this is your host, Stephen Novella, president of the New England Skeptical Society. Joining me this evening are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hi, everyone. Perry DeAngelis. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Hi, everyone. How's everyone? Very good. Quite well. We have an interview coming up later this evening with uh, Fraser Kane and Pamela Gay. But first, we're going to do some news items. One interesting news item from this week, there's been a conflict between the Church of Scientology and the BBC. Now, I know you guys have all read about this. Been all over it. Yeah, the BBC is, is uh, airing a program, um, an investigative piece about Scientology, and it's rather unflattering. This is being done by John Sweeney. Uh, he is the BBC reporter. And the, the Scientologists are trying to get the program blocked on the basis that Sweeney is uh, what they claim he is bigoted and biased and that the BBC shouldn't be giving him a venue to air his bigotry, uh, which, of course, is what they always say whenever anyone tries to, to offer up any criticism of the church. One other background for this, um, John Sweeney apparently, I guess as part of his investigation for this piece, was doing a, was going through the, the Scientology Museum, and at one point, everything that was happening got to him so much that he kind of lost his cool, and he had a bit of a, uh, of an outburst. The Scientologists, who I guess were filming him the whole time, uh, caught this on tape and immediately started a a uh, YouTube campaign to try to discredit Sweeney to sit, to show that see see how emotional and biased and bigoted he is. S- Sweeney in turn, um, you know, wrote a wrote a, an article explaining what happened and you know responding to them. And this is all sort of surrounding the question of whether or not the BBC should air this piece, which which and and the piece did air on May fourteenth, and you can if you missed it, you can watch it online. Uh, we'll have a link to the to the site that has that. Did anybody any of you guys catch it? Not no, not yet. I was I was going to uh, do it today. I did watch some of the uh, other stuff. I did watch him freaking out. It was embarrassing, but I know the backstory. I understand what was going on um, at that at that particular moment. They were making an accusation uh, against his uh, interview credibility like he was basically the accusation made was that he was going easy on someone who was who was talking out against Scientology and uh he had he had to view a bunch of um a bunch of people like I don't want to say torture but it was they were they were I guess he was watching something about psychiatry and there was all these like you know showing like kids needles in their eyes and all sorts of crazy stuff like the worst of the worst stuff that anyone could ever dig up about you know you know past psychiatry methods and everything that the church was pumping out as uh as like modern uh, mm-hmm. so basically they're anti psychiatry propaganda and eventually yeah, just got under his skin. Yeah, I mean he admitted it was you know unprofessional for him to lose it like that, but it you know I, you know it, it's ridiculous that the Scientologists are trying to use that to discredit his journalism uh, or the piece itself. Uh the, the, I guess the bits that are uh that are most provocative in this in the in the piece concern his interviews with with family members and parents who have basically been disconnected from their relatives who have gone into Scientology, which you know is one of the features that is common in, in destructive 
belief systems or destructive cults where they they do try to separate you entirely from everybody from your your previous life your life outside of the group uh, and he and uh, Sweeney was documenting this about the Church of Scientology so did you guys know that um I never heard of this before until I started doing research on this particular article and this event. L. Ron Hubbard, or uh, as I like to call him, uh, Drunk Hubbard, he uh, he came up with this idea, which he calls fair game. And I got it. Drunkard Hubbard. Drunkard, Drunkard Hubbard. Hubbard. <laughs> <laughs> this fair game thing, which uh, basically means that anyone that goes against the church, opposes the church in any way, is fair game, which means that they can legitimately be tricked, sued, or lied to, and destroyed. Mm -hmm. And and I quote, tricked, sued, or lied to, and destroyed. He he said that. And then Sandy Smith, who I believe is one of the producers of of Sweeney's program, uh, said that this is the most clear fair game smear tactic from the Scientologists. They have accused people of murder before. They have falsified allegations against people, and now they are doing it against us. I mean, and they are. They are going yeah. tooth and nail against the BBC. Right. They, they accuse the BBC of, of, uh, of death threats. The BBC. Wow. They threaten people with death threats. Yeah. So Hubbard, Hubbard started this maliciousness uh, that's kind of like, you know, endemic to the, to the religion. I just kind of, I just, I just kind of thought it was like an outgrowth, something that just kind of evolved in that direction. But I didn't know that he, you know, endorsed you know these malicious tactics. And John Travolta is the uh, the celebrity, the Scientology celebrity, who is taking the forefront and criticizing the BBC and Sweeney. You know, that's why the Scientologists woo and try to recruit these celebrities, like Tom Cruise, who we all know is Jay's uh, favorite actor. And now um, it's John Travolta's turn to take the uh, take the forefront. In the PR campaign against uh, against the church's enemies, I also read something else I thought was really interesting. The church goes after celebrities for a lot of reasons, and, and uh, one of them is that they actually recruit more celebrities with celebrities because they have that star value. Yeah. They have the personality, and it's really to me it's it's ridiculous. How how obvious is this? You know, I don't know, Jay. I mean, I don't know. You know what what they're thinking about. Maybe they think they're getting a little bit of the star treatment, but that's they don't have any appreciation for how bad it is for the rank and file down below. So I think Nicole Kidman actually broke it off with with Cruz because of this. I don't know, did she ever oh, make any definitive statement about that? I remember. I just remember reading uh, in an article recently that uh, when she when she got to level three. Uh, whatever level you know, whatever that entails. Well, I guess when she finally heard about the whole Xenu um, baloney, when she heard that, she was like, "That's it, I'm out of this. This is good just- for her, right?" So yeah, I, I, yeah, my respect went up for her when I when I read that. Yeah, it took her all the way to level three to figure it out, though. The other news item involving a celebrity fronting or shilling for nonsense is uh, involves Rosie O'Donnell at it again. Now, we had spoken before about Rosie um, on The View talking about, you know, basically endorsing um, 9-11 conspiracy theories, although she said, I don't know who did it, but then she asked the, all the, the usual questions, like, but this is the first time that fire melted steel. Uh, and now, it, uh, on a recent episode of The View, she added a, a couple of more nuggets to that. Again, she's just parroting um, loose change and other sort of 9-11 conspiracy outlets. Nothing she's saying is new. She again made the made the claim that um, 
that fire can't melt steel because steel melts at 2,700 degrees. It's actually 2,750, but that's close enough. But and then interestingly, in the next breath, she says, right. and there was molten steel in the, in the floor of the, uh, of the towers after it collapsed. The people saw p- pools of molten steel. By the way, there, isn't, there was not molten steel uh, at the base of the towers. It was that aluminum. Was, it was, it was the, uh, molten aluminum from the planes. The planes did, the aluminum in the planes melted. And, and that's what people saw in Confused for, for Molten Steel. Steel, aluminum, <laughs> what the hell's the difference? <laughs> yeah. Oh, she, she was confronted with the notion it's that, well... It's She's no biology te- temp- Very low temperatures, <laughs> like even just a few hundred degrees, like even just 400 degrees, would significantly uh. weaken the steel enough that, that it couldn't support the weight of the building and it would collapse, and she didn't really have an answer for that. Although later she also repeated the canard about the, the towers falling faster than freefall, which uh-huh. is, first of all... It's wrong. God. If you watch the video, you could see objects falling and dust falling faster than the building. Again, what do the again? They're just anomaly hunting. These anomalies aren't even real because the towers aren't falling faster than free fall. You can see it clearly on the video. And I remember I got into this email debate with one of the nine eleven uh, conspiracy theorists, and we looked at the same video. I said you could see the debris falling faster than the tower. And they just said no, it isn't. The tower is falling faster. What can you say then? What, what can you say about that? At that point, you just walk away. It's just we're looking at the same thing and we're seeing different things. Uh, but do, do they think that there were like rockets at the top of the towers, you know, Pushing accelerating them faster than freefall? Yeah. And what, what's the scenario that creates the towers falling faster than freefall? It doesn't. It doesn't make a, any gra- sense. a gravity pump that the government secretly made to help bring them down fast. Gravity pump. You know, she said on that episode, the one I think where she originally opened her mouth, that uh, she wants to get physics experts in from Yale and all that. And of or course, Harvard. That, in Harvard, but it, it didn't happen, right? No. The physics experts are already on record, you know, as saying that right. the, how the towers collapsed. But they did say in, during that segment that I saw that, uh, that maybe they should, you know, get, you know, an expert on one side and a supposed ex- expert on another side, and have them talk about it. And uh, and then and then Rosie said, uh, "Nobody nobody wants to talk about it." Well, th- then why are you bringing it up if nobody wants to talk about it? Clearly, people want to talk about it. No, no expert wants to take the side that Rosie O'Donnell is taking. I thought she was the expert. Oh, she could she could find plenty of them. Uh, the other another interesting news item from the past week is an article. I think Perry, you sent me this article. Um, the, the title of which is Researcher, like how they use that. Researcher says some children demonstrate unusual abilities after UFO and extraterrestrial encounters. So a while ago we talked about the indigo children. Now these are the star children. <laughs> Not to be confused with the Star Child Project. Oh, God, right, so Star ridiculous. Child. <laughs> so these are kids who had an encounter with aliens and now they have... You know, either ESP or some some paranormal ability. Twelve feet. This quote unquote researcher Rodwell said her name was awfully Rodwell. close to Roswell. <laughs> Rod- <laughs> Rodwell. It's an interesting name. My clients include both adults and children who exhibit transformative changes, such as telepathy, clairvoyance, and healing, as they become nice. more spiritually aware and begin to operate on a multi-dimensional band of reality. That is so. so what were they? What were cool. they wow, that's a lot of gobbledygook yeah. to fit into one sentence. <laughs> what, were, what were these kids? One-dimensional until this happened. And now, bam, they're in three dimensions. Hey, Bob, I'm telling you, when I get drunk, I can have all those powers. Too. 
too. <laughs> now, she doesn't have I, any evidence for this, of course. <laughs> <laughs> no, Steve, she says, and I quote, Australia's Mary Rodwell says that there is now enough evidence to conclude that these quote-unquote beings appear to come from other planets and other dimensions parallel to our own. Right there. Now, is this spectral evidence? Ha, no, wait. <laughs> I got a question. How does she know that these dimensions aren't perpendicular to our own? That's a question I have. <laughs> yeah, why parallel. are they parallel? You know what? They parallel. might even be askew. <laughs> Ooh. Or tangential. I mean, come on. I know, right, Perry? It's like, will you please? Please. <laughs> she might. She's a member of the Australian Close Encounter Resource Network, <laughs> ACER, you know. Founded in 1978, right after the movie Close Encounters came Here's out. Her, here is, this, is, this is her best proof. She says, these star children exhibit a maturity and wisdom beyond their years and often describe their connection to spirit and angelic realms. There that is go. amazing proof. Angelic no, realms, like Nirvana. No, Jay, she's got better evidence than that. Towards the end, it said that um, though her evidence does not include an actual UFO, Rodwell says that she has evidence from a scientific, medical, psychological, and historical perspective to support her paradigm-shifting conclusion. Okay, again, they mention evidence all over the place. Show me the evidence. Show me the evidence. Come on. I mean, you just can't throw yeah. you know, evidence around and, and not produce it. Just right. produce it, and that will end this. Well, the, the reporter didn't you know, actually decide that it was necessary to reference any actual evidence. Apparently, they didn't ask those such pointed questions. Oh, come on. When, whenever anyone says that what they're doing is paradigm shifting, you know they're full of it. My research is paradigm shifting. You're a quack. <laughs> Your research is baloney. <laughs> There's almost a one-to-one correlation between self-proclaimed paradigm shifting and quackery. Uh, it says on their on their website, you know, the ACERN website says ACERN is a professional organization and as such has several professionals available as a resource offering information, counseling, and therapy. They, they, they offer counseling and therapeutic support, telephone and internet support, access to professionals, psychologists, GPs, as well as complimentary practitioners. Right. This is a full-service organization. Absolutely. I'm a complimentary practitioner. Perry, you're looking very well today. Perry, can, can, <laughs> you, can you use a more mocking tone next time? <laughs> yeah, you're slipping, Perry. <laughs> I mean, this is a... One last news item. There was a recent recent study published in the Journal of National Cancer of the National Cancer Institute that uh, links heavy multivitamin use to advanced prostate cancer. Uh, this is we reported on a previous meta analysis from Scandinavia showing that uh, a correlation between multivitamin use and uh, and death in that meta analysis. This is a, a more specific study, but it is uh, it is a correlation study. So it does again raise uh, the the concern that we should not think of vitamins as as having zero risk. Anything that could do anything to the body, if it could if it could help you. Then it could hurt you. Yeah, and even water. Yeah, right? and, we, and we need to have you know evidence-based guidelines for anything, even things that may seem benign, like taking vitamins. Now, what the study showed uh, is that th- those men who were taking just um, regular supplemental doses of multivitamins did not have a correlation. It was only in those who were taking vitamins more than once a day. So what would be considered high or heavy multivitamin use. So there's a little bit of a dose correlation there, which lends a little bit of credibility to it. Plus, a lot of multivitamins, people don't realize this, that there are some 
you know, multivitamins contain like the fat-soluble vitamins, like some of the B vitamins, that you know get stored in the fat in your body. The excess does not get simply excreted in urine. You actually hold on to it. And it's actually not that difficult to get toxic levels of, of vitamins. If you're getting certain vitamins from multiple sources, some people might take a multivitamin plus a B complex plus supplements that have vitamins in it, and they might be eating fortified cereal, you know, who knows. So in certain cases, you've added all together and you, yeah, you're getting actual toxic doses. This wasn't looking at specific known vitamin toxicity. It's just saying if you're the men who are taking the the higher doses at a higher correlation for, for prostate cancer. Now, this is not a randomized study in that men were not assigned to take heavy multivitamins at random. The people were choosing themselves. That, and whenever a study is not randomized, so people are, are not sorted randomly into what, what they're taking, then that introduces the possibility for you know a host of confounding factors, including unknown variables that we can't anticipate. Um, for example, like in the Scandinavia meta-analysis that I mentioned, it's quite possible that people who are sick take vitamins because they think it'll help because they're sick. And that, so then, of course, taking vitamins would correlate with being sick, right? Because it's, it's the right. sickness right. that led to taking the vitamins, not the other way around. And you just can't control for those kind of things unless you, you decide you know, who takes at random, who takes the vitamins and who doesn't. Steve, there's a phrase, there's a phrase in this piece that is, is a quote from the authors, and it says, because multivitamin supplements consist of a combination of several vitamins, and men using high levels of multivitamins were also more likely to take a variety of individual supplements. We were unable to identify or quantify individual components responsible for the observations we observed. Yeah. So, so what's the? I mean, yeah, so they're saying two things really. That you know, there's lots of things in a multivitamin, so you, you don't know what it is in there. That that if it is a cause and effect, you don't know what what is the cause. And also because men who who self-selected for taking heavy doses of multivitamins probably are also taking lots of other supplements and it may be something else that they're taking that really was the culprit. So that's what they were just pointing out some of these confounding factors that I'm talking about. So this, right, this but if they couldn't separate the difference between the multivitamins and these other supplements, doesn't that really skew the study? Well, what, what they're saying is this is a correlation study. And what they're saying is that, the, that the, there, there was a correlation between prostate cancer and heavy multivitamin use, but that correlation may be because those who are taking the heavy, the heavy multivitamin use may just be a marker for other behavior because it may go along with other behavior like taking a lot of other supplements. Does that make sense? So sometimes when we see a correlation, you know, you, the, the correlation is not it's not due to a cause and effect. You're correlating with something which is just a marker for the real cause. It's something that itself you know, correlates with the real cause. You may be one or two or multiple steps removed from what's really going on. That, that's basically what they're saying. So that's, that's a, just a generic weakness to this kind of epidemiological data and why um, it's never definitive. You could really only definitively answer these questions by doing um, placebo-controlled randomized trials, you know, where, right. you, where you basically control for all these other variables that we're talking about. Yeah, I mean, if you set up a study to do it specifically, you could double do it. blind and everything. Yeah, make two groups be hard to or make three groups. You know, one group right. gets nothing. Group two gets multivitamins. Group three <clears> gets heavy multivitamins. And then you follow them for five years and see how many get prostate cancer. You, you could do that study. Steve, on, on a side note, do you know, uh, don't they computer simulate Models like this can they, is it are we at that point yet where we can simulate the um, physiology? Not in any meaningful way. I mean, you can only do that really as sort of preclinical, you know, preliminary data. Um, you know, for- to see if something really terrible is going to occur. 
the pharmaceutical companies certainly will do that. They'll try to predict as, as much as they can before they spend the millions and millions on human trials. You know what's going to what what uh, substances will do in people, uh, for example. And of course, you do animal research, and uh, you know as much as you can. Uh, first, you have to do a certain amount of preclinical research before you ethically can expose humans to to new substances. If you're if you're researching vitamins or things that are already out there, it's a lot easier. You don't have to do that because these things are already available to people. So, but then the bottom line is there, there are there are no computer models of human physiology and biochemistry where we could say you know expose that to a novel chemical and predict how the body's going to deal with it or, or yeah. all of the effects. Yeah, you know, there's just too many variables and too many unknowns. And also, you know, human beings are variable. There would it wouldn't be a model. It would be you know you'd have to model the 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 full range of variation among people right exactly it's a big spectrum I mean yeah. human beings all the way to Rosie it's it's yeah. it's hard to it's hard to qualify everyone <laughs> oh, God. she's like the third one from the left on the evolution chart right oh God well let's let's move on to your your email and questions well I think I think we have time for just one email today because I want to leave plenty of time for an interview with Pamela and Fraser this email comes from Petruccio in Brazil, and he writes, I wanted to hear your take on this video. And he gives us a link. Since it's fairly a new video at YouTube, I couldn't find any hard information on the video and its credibility, and I didn't see any reason to give it any. A few red flags popped up, but I would like to hear what your opinions on it are before listing them, and I'm sure you will probably also see them and more. Uh, Russian rocket CGI, just a very strange rock, real aliens. Congrats on the great show. Keep up the great work. Uh, thanks, Patricio. So this is a video that ostensibly is of a uh, NASA recording of an Apollo lander, you know, skimming over the surface of the moon. Apparently, it's of the far side of the moon. Well, showing... I guess we don't know what's a lander, those two. It said just a flyby. I assume a flyby orbiting, you know, an orbiting. Uh... Could be. It looked pretty close, though. But you're right. It could be. So some lunar vehicle. With somebody, you know, but, but manned, not a robot, because there's somebody manning that camera. Apollo and 20, it says. It says Apollo 20, Apollo which 20. of course is your first clue because the Apollo missions only went up to 17. There was no Apollo 20. Uh, and it, it <laughs> essentially shows a, um, like a cigar shaped object in the, in the lunar soil. It looks big, although, you know, it's hard to get a reference, uh, something for reference of size. And then as the camera zooms in on it, it shows some. You know some unnaturally sharp right angles and regular features, and it's clearly not a natural object once the camera you know pans across it. Uh, it and it, it could certainly be a spaceship. Um, it looks like the surface is encrusted with lunar soil and it's pitted. So uh, you're also hearing it, it's barely audible the uh, the voice of the astronaut who's taking the film, and and you know the, it's transcribed with the subtitle so you can see what he's saying and he comments that it looks like it's billions of years old for example it's it's actually a, an interesting video but it's i also think also quite clearly a fake um i don't think that this this is it's not a real video it's not a misidentified natural object uh i don't think it's a uh, a, a rocket like a russian rocket as a prestigio uh, hypothesized i think the video is just plainly a fake well, a couple of red flags that I saw was for, the first thing you see is that um, there's some numbers and lines superimposed over the image, like the camera 
was looking through a transparent piece of uh, of glass with some some writing on it. So right. I don't know. I don't know why they would actually film something something so historic. Something even if it's just the moon, why would you film it? Through this obscuring, uh, you know, haze of numbers and lines, and a couple of the other, the two biggest red flags, and they're, they're kind of ridiculous. Right before the ship shows up, there's a huge light flare. Um, yeah, the, the, it's the a screen, cut. The screen just goes all white, and then uh, and then there's static, and then the ship shows up, and then then the other thing that I noticed. Oh, and like, the numbers are gone, Bob. At that point, also. Oh yes, good catch. Yeah, good you catch. no longer see the numbers at that point. Yeah, but Bob, you hear that that. Beep noise of the communicator turning on and off, so it has to be true. Well, yeah, that was very realistic. <laughs> the, the background beeps were very realistic. But the other one was that right after, right after this this huge light flare and static, the terrain is markedly different than than how it was before this happened. So, I mean, I don't think you need any bigger red flags than what we've just mentioned. There's a rough cut there, yeah. It, definitely, definitely a rough cut. And as you, and as it zooms in, you get a pretty close shot that fills up about the whole frame with the what appears to be the nose tip area of the ship what it looks like to me is the end of a pen that somebody covered in dirt basically you know and that the uh, the, the the part where it looks like maybe the window of the cockpit is where the metal clip begins on the on the uh, tip of a pen that you would have fastened to your shirt or something like that that's what it looks like to me now you want my hypothesis sure yeah. I, I think that this is actually not a hoax I think it's a prank. And the reason why I say that is because the, uh, the person who is putting these videos up on YouTube has their own YouTube space. His username is RetiredAFB. And he joined on April 1st, 2007. <laughs> hmm. yeah. Coincidence? Like I, like I was saying, this Perhaps. is the first time I'm seeing this live here. Uh, for the first time we're reporting the podcast. This is one of the stupidest videos I have ever seen. This is LeMay. <laughs> Lame. This was a question sent in by a listener. This is no dumber than the 9-11 conspiracy. I, I didn't say it was. Just wondering why we chose to talk about it. It's also not impossible that you know we might uncover a buried monolith or some alien artifact. On monolith. Steve. It blows. Steve, I, I like Steve's hypothesis. I think it is a prank. I think that they were hoping to yeah. get somewhere with it. It's actually, it's actually, uh, if they did it as a prank, it was a good job. Yeah. What? The, product, the production quality, I mean, I, I, production quality for what it's just trying to look like is not bad, you know. Um, actually, the, uh, the, there are a number of these videos on the internet now. They're like viral videos. And um, there was one about, like, do you guys remember seeing the demon in the woods? Oh, one yeah. from a no. few months ago where, you know, it's somebody like as if they're just going on an investigation through the woods and they're walking with the camera. It's oh, like three, three minutes of that nonsense. And then they come across like the glowing eyes in the, or there's like this, it takes you a moment to figure out that it's like a crouched, thin, dark human form. And then like the head turns to you and it has glowing eyes and you realize what it is. But there's also like, like the music chimes in right at that point for a little dramatic effect. <laughs> so it's clearly produced. But the, a lot of these things are being done. I think we talked about this before. They're being done actually as a viral advertising campaign for some video game or movie Product or something that's coming cola. out. Yeah. Drink alien Coke. Right. So, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if this is part of that or if we, you know, this is gonna, like next year there's going to be some movie about discovering a spaceship on the moon or if this guy is just plainly an April Fool's prank and he's, he's trying to see how much, 
how much uh, leverage it gets before. Does it look like the tip of a pen to anyone else? I'm just I'm curious. Speechless. It's roughly cigar shaped. A pen, a penis. What difference does it make? To you, a lot. Nothing. Let me tell you. She whipped that out quick, guys. <laughs> <laughs> nice. All right. Well, that's all the time we have for emails this week. Let's go on to our interview. Joining us now are the hosts of the popular podcast Astronomy Cast, Fraser Kane and Pamela Gay. Fraser and Pamela, welcome to the Skeptics Guide. Well, thanks for inviting us. Hi, skeptics. <laughs> I think this is the first time we've had dual guests on. This is true. <laughs> this is very exciting. Bold new ground. Let's hope we can hold this together. Yeah. So just for a little background, Fraser is the publisher of Universe Today. Uh, and Pamela is a lifetime stargazer and a, an assistant professor of physics at Southern U- Illinois University. And together they do the Astronomy Cast podcast, which is a very excellent science podcast. You can check it out on iTunes, and we'll have a link to it, of course, uh, from our notes page on our website. So how did you guys decide to get into science podcasting? Well, I think that for for me, I actually started up my Universe Today podcast mm-hmm. about almost two years ago and really i just got got uh, goaded into doing it by people on on the forum so they nagged me to do a podcast so i ended up getting equipment and, and doing it and ran that for about a about a year or so and i had an idea for another podcast that was going to be much more specific almost like an educational podcast that was going to cover the entire concept of astronomy from one uh, aspect to another, sort of deal with one topic at a time, and not be more cu- and not be newsy the way Universe Today was. So mm-hmm. be something that maybe could stand forever as a as a resource. And when that idea was kind of bubbling around in my mind, Pamela had had come up for air from her work on uh, Slacker Astronomy, mm-hmm. which you can go into at some point. And so I pitched the idea to her. She thought it was good, and we started doing. Episodes. I think that was back in September of uh, 2006. Yep. Yeah. So, We're- Pamela, what happened with Slacker Astronomy? Because that was really popular. I loved Slacker Astronomy. Well, there were a lot of life changes going on all at once. I got married and moved to the middle of the country, and Aaron entered graduate school, and we all wanted something slightly different, going in slightly different directions, and. For me, putting out a weekly show, it's something that's fun, that I really enjoy. Slacker went to doing more like once a month. And also, putting on a professor hat, there's always this creeping suspicion that at some point my students are going to go, yeah, not funny with the Slacker astronomy stuff. (laughs) So it's just a little bit safer doing doing, uh, astronomy cast with Fraser. It's also misnamed, I think. Because you guys were putting in a ton of work. Oh, yeah. It was it was five hours to write an episode sometimes. And that's five hours to write a 12-minute bit. Uh, Travis was doing all of the editing. Sometimes we did truly insane things like pretend we knew how to sing. And uh, 
<laughs> it was a wild ride and it was a lot of fun, but it was time to try something new, try new directions. And so two new shows came out of what used to be just one. That's great. Yeah, and I know a lot of people were really happy to hear you back on, on the airwaves, so to speak. Well, I think the format works very it's well because it's ride. very conversational. You know, you have the two of you basically engage in a conversation about the topics that you're talking about, and it makes it less dry and didactic. Which, even like for me, I, I love science. I can sit for hours in lectures, and I, I often have to. But even still with as, as high a threshold as I have, it is sometimes very difficult to just maintain your attention when it's just a voice, you know, talking on, on a topic. Uh, a conversation just makes it so much more accessible and easy to pay attention and listen. So I think it, it works really, really well. We've got a lot of good feedback about that too. A lot of people say they really like the conversational tone um, bet- between us and the, and the give and take between uh, all the various uh, participants of our podcast. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, I, I, I've been following your show for about six months or so, and uh, and it works out really well. I've, I think some people were saying, you guys should structure it more like Skeptic's Guide, and that was how I first started listening to your show. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, and so I was like, they handled, they got, they got mail, and they have great little contests, and but I don't think we will. So, well, let's get to some astronomy, Bob. I know you had some questions for Pamela. Why don't you, yeah, go ahead and get started. One question I have is um, about the ultimate fate of the universe. I think there's a couple couple ideas that I think are pretty much thrown around that I think are most people think these are probably one one of the ways it's going to happen. Um, I mean, the big crunch is not. I mean, that was for years. I remember thinking, well, we're going to end in a big crunch, and of course, dark energy, you know, destroyed that idea. But now, is it is it correct that it's Pretty much the two contenders are the heat death, where entropy reaches maximum and there's no no temperature gradients or anything, or and the other the other one that's kind of interesting, um, if pretty nasty, is the big rip, where the accelerating expansion caused by the dark energy just kind of rips everything apart into elementary particles and and radiation. Are those the two big contenders for the ultimate fate of the universe, or is there some that I'm I'm not aware You're of? You're right or? on target. That's exactly what we're seeing is the possible fates. One thing that's working somewhat in our favor is the amount of dark energy doesn't seem to be increasing in time. And so that hopefully is pointing toward a heat death for the end of the universe. But we're still learning. We've only known about dark energy since about 1998. So this is still a completely new field of thought. It's it's one of these things where I'm young enough that I still have all the color in my hair, but all my textbooks are already out of date. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure you saw the pictures of the uh, the dark matter ring around the the galaxy cluster. Oh, that was I actually made that the backdrop on my computer, and I very <laughs> <laughs> I very I rarely did. do that. <laughs> it's beautiful. The basic idea that everyone had always had was the dark matter halos around both individual galaxies and around clusters of galaxies were spheres, just big blobs of dark matter that acted as a scaffolding that held all of the luminous, all of the visible matter. Now, in this particular case, the dark matter actually forms basically a donut around the cluster of galaxies, 
we hadn't thought that these shapes could occur. And this is a great new idea. And it's actually one that makes perfect sense. If you collide two objects, the dynamics of the collision can drive the anything that's affected by gravity and dark matter is affected by gravity. It can drive it into a ring. We've seen this with individual galaxies before, where you take one galaxy and you throw a second galaxy through its center perpendicular to the plane of the disk and you can end up with this really neat ring. Well, in this case, at some point in the past, a cluster threw itself at a different cluster and the result of the merger of those two systems created this donut of dark matter. We're actually really fortunate because the way we're seeing it, it, we're really lucky because of the way the angle of the collision happened. So we're seeing that ring because of the you know because it was like a head-on collision right and the second thing is also in the time because when the two galaxy clusters collided it's like the dark matter sloshed out into this big ring and it, it expanded expanded and then it's sort of reaching the limits of its of the gravitational pull and is going to start coming back inside again and oscillate and so you've got this really good timing both in the way we see it as well as when it when it's happening for us to be able to see this ring right how big were these clusters? Oh, I don't know those exact numbers. I only hold so much in my head. But the European Space Agency, mm-hmm. uh, sorry, the European Southern Observatory folks have both really great um, diagrams of how this happened on their website, as well as all the numbers. And there's a good link to this off of the Bad Astronomy website. Yeah, yeah. Phil, so Phil played on Bad Astronomy has the pictures up and talks about this as well. The, uh, the cluster is a couple of million light years across. And just for a little bit of background for the listeners, uh, dark matter is matter that we know is there because of its gravitational effects, although we can't see it because it's dark. It emits no radiation, correct? And it also doesn't interact with matter in, in other ways. Really, the only interaction that we know about is gravity. Is that correct? Yeah, it um doesn't generally interact via the electromagnetic forces at all, and in some cases, uh, only slightly via the weak force, such as neutrinos interact via the weak force. I have another question. Now, with this this latest bit of evidence where they map it, we can't see the dark matter, but we can map out where it should be based upon its gravitational effects on the matter that we can see, and we get this nice pretty picture of a ring, which led to the prediction that this were two superclusters that collided, and, and if I read it correctly, the, the superclusters look like they did collide, because there's two different sort of identifiable subsets of this now one supercluster. So how much of, yes. a, of a proof is this for the existence of dark matter? Can we say at this point dark matter definitely exists, and this, this evidence is pretty conclusive? Yes. Um, th- this is actually it's slightly more subtle. It's We're able to see the dark matter because of the way it bends light from background objects. So when you look at... Through gravitational lensing. Yes, through gravitational lensing. So when you look at a whole bunch of background galaxies, they're going to have a random distribution of shapes. And if you average their shapes together and nothing is affecting them, they should average out to little circles on the sky. 
But if instead you end up seeing a teardrop or something that's slightly splattered off to the right, you know that these distortions are being caused by some sort of a lens. In this case, it's a gravitational lens that's affecting the light between you and where it's being emitted. So we're using the ability of gravity to bend light to make a map of mass that we can't see in any other way except via its gravitational pull. Uh, it's really, really neat science. It's getting some truly phenomenal results on making these really detailed maps of completely invisible stuff. Um, so it's it's just great science yeah. done with high-resolution imaging. And there was another uh, result earlier this year that was kind of in a similar vein. One of the questions about dark matter is, what is it? And it's one of the main theories is this WIMPs theory, this weakly interacting mass, massive particles. So they, they only interact through their gravity. And so one of the results that happened earlier this year that was announced was that you had, once again, you had two clusters coming together. And when the two clusters collided, their gas in between them has a cross section. The gas, the gas molecules are essentially bumping into each other and the gas molecules slowed down and sort of formed this, this gas cloud in between where the galaxies were coming together. The stars, planets, all that kind of stuff passed right by each other. And the part that's interesting is that the dark matter had no cross-section, so the dark matter also passed right by each other. And so you got this separation. It's almost like someone had, had separated out the gas, the stars, and the dark matter into three separate layers as these two clusters came together. And so once again, there's more evidence that if if it was something that just was gravity acting differently at large distances, mm -hmm. you wouldn't necessarily see this. Or if it was some kind of cold gas that you wouldn't be able to see, then you would expect the dark matter to bump into other dark matter and slow down. But the dark matter just went sailed right on past itself without interacting, which, you know, provides more evidence for this weakly interacting mass of particles. So dark matter is definitely this thing. It is some kind of actual matter and yet we still have no idea what it is. Is that correct? Uh, yes. <laughs> but it, it's one of those times, though, where we are uh, slowly building a picture of the elephant with a dozen blind men each identifying a different part. We don't have the complete picture, but we're getting at all the pieces. And eventually we'll have the complete picture. And knocking off the things that it's not. Yes, so get, um, what are some things that were contenders that we've shown that it's not at this point? Well, there's modified Newtonian dynamics, which isn't 100% dead, but it's now safe to say that dark matter does have a physical reality. We're not simply seeing a flaw in our understanding of gravity. For mm -hmm. a while, there's this back-of-the-field twitch that, well, maybe there's this extra term in gravity that only really comes into play at extremely large distances. And there are some really good mathematical theories that are able to explain up to but not including the gravitational lensing. They were able to explain the rotation curves of, gra of galaxies. They were able to explain the Tully-Fisher relationship, which describes the rotation rate um, and luminosity relationship in spiral galaxies. It just made a lot of really good fits to observables. But it can't explain the gravitational lensing. Mm -hmm. So 
it has to be set aside as, well, you can't explain this, but weakly interacting massive particles can. So the, the WIMPs are the, the leading contender at this point? Yes. Is there, so what study would, would, would prove that? Is it, what's in the works to, to, to validate that hypothesis? Well, it's kind of hard to figure out how to interact with something that doesn't seem to want to interact via any identifiable reaction that we can do in a lab, that we can do in an accelerator. So there is a lot of really intelligent head-scratching going on. Um, One direction that is being considered is you might not be able to detect it because it doesn't produce any electromagnetic radiation, but you might be able to detect it as it's annihilated. Mm -hmm. So there's a possibility that, for example, dark matter might be annihilating in around the supermassive black hole at the heart of the Milky Way, or there could be dark matter annihilations in in other locations where it gets scrunched up with, with gravity. And that could let off particles and radiation that maybe could be detected. And and there are some that are some uh, researchers that are actually looking at the gamma ray background where it, if you look faint enough at the entire sky there's background light in many different colors. It's not just a microwave background, there's an infrared background. And as you look at this there's different spikes at different wavelengths and there's people thinking that perhaps some of these spikes correspond to dark matter annihilation at large redshifts. Cool. I think dark matter is a great aspect of science, especially of, of cosmology, because they don't know what it is. Yeah. And yet it does seem to be there and it just has certain characteristics that you can't explain away. And I have, uh, I see a lot of people on, on forums who disagree with the concept of dark matter almost instinctively. Like, like I don't, it's not there. I don't like it. And yet with almost like with quantum theory, it's one of those things that your intuition is worthless. Mm-hmm. All you can do is slowly move forward, listening to what the experiments tell you, the direction that the evidence builds up. And there's so many now, so much evidence that's mounting up that you can't just say, I don't like it. Right. <laughs> you know? And yet that seems to be a real knee jerk reaction that a lot of people have. And I'm sure it's very similar in a lot of other fields with that with with skepticism yeah but you have to say like if, if you don't like this theory or this hypothesis come up with another one that fits the evidence that we have so far you know you explain the existing evidence some other you have to come up with some kind of alternate theory or you have to come up with some concrete reason why it can't be right just the fact that it doesn't feel right is not enough so often it seems like people are recreating galileo's little demons behind friction where you say no there can't possibly be friction and you attribute all of the characteristics of friction to little demons and eventually you've defined your little demons in such a way that really it's friction Mm -hmm. you just have a new name attached to it well if it looks like an elephant smells like an elephant and roars like an elephant you can call it a puppy but it's still probably an elephant i think i'll uh, i'll ascribe to um to douglas adams uh idea. His, his idea, dark matter, actually turned out to be all the packing material in all the boxes of the astronomer's equipment to study dark matter. <laughs> so I, that, that gets my vote. Now, Fraser, you brought up uh, you know, dealing with skeptical issues, and on, so far on Astronomy Cast, um, I've listened to a lot of the episodes, and I was just looking back over your archives. It looks like you guys have been sticking with pretty straightforward astronomy. Do you plan on tackling uh, pseudoscientific topics within, within astronomy? 
Well, we do. We keep bumping them down. Mm-hmm. But um, I've got one called uh, I'm planning called Astrology is Worthless. Mm-hmm. But no, I think that that's that's a situation where I think there are a lot of people, especially listening to our show, who might even be sitting on the fence about astrology. So I'd like to let them know where we stand. Mm-hmm. And then let the chips fall where they may. Uh, the other one is I was going to do a show on, uh, or we're going to do a show on rational explanations for UFOs. So Phil goes into this quite a bit. Yeah. Phil Plate, where he, he talks about, you know, here's a UFO sighting and here's the rational reason, or here's a rational reason for a UFO or some weird thing in the sky. Do you think that looks like a UFO? But after that, there aren't a lot of pseudoscience. I mean, there's some like this planet X colliding with the earth, but some of it for us is just so fringe that I don't know if it's even worth our time mm-hmm. to debunk. Yeah, the, the, the type of places where you're also going to see it cropping up with us is there are still people who think that using um, redshift, using the rate at which objects appear to be moving away from the Earth to demonstrate, or from the entire galaxy for that matter, um, to demonstrate that the universe is expanding is ridiculous. And they claim that quasars, extremely bright galaxies with actively feeding supermassive black holes in their center, um, aren't really what I just described them as. They're just really bright things that are flung out of normal galaxies at extremely high velocities. These people are still out there, and at some point we'll confront them. There are people out there who think the Big Bang is ridiculous and we need to consider study state models. So there's all these different things just within astronomy alone that we can attack and we can use as a teaching tool to explain well, no, really. Here's why we understand that quasars are at extremely large distances. Here is why we know the Big Bang is true and steady state doesn't quite work. So there's there's lots of room within just astronomy to stick with the hard science and without the people realizing it, debunk their myths. We did do one show about four or five episodes, and we actually mashed a whole bunch of topics into one show. Went through string theory, white holes, time travel, warp 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 drives. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, and we got a lot of flack for that one, actually. Flack from who? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we actually did. I enjoyed it. Well, I think that people, because the concepts are so wonderful, moving faster than the speed of light, moving back in time, portals into other universes, changing dimensions... uh, that people really, really want them to be true and will hold on to any piece of evidence that they can get their hands on. And the problem is then these concepts get an unreasonable amount of coverage in the media and especially in science fiction shows and stuff like that. So, you know, there's, you know, warp drives or time travel are fundamentally break the laws of physics String theory is one of these examples that, you know, the job of string theory is to fundamentally bring together all of the laws of the universe to provide one formula that tells you that you look at it one way and you've got gravity and you look at it a different way and you've got rocks and you look at it a different way and you've got the strong nuclear force. Mm-hmm. And wouldn't that be great? And so people really hold on to string theory and yet the reality is that the evidence right now doesn't exist. So it's just math. And and we wanted to put that in context for people and say, 
here's where it all stands. Sorry. Even Brian Green, I went to a, a talk that he did, and even he said that uh, it really shouldn't be called a theory. It's really, uh, you know, an Or a model. I think a model is probably point. better because model is what it is, the mathematical model, but it's not testable yet, so it hasn't graduated to a scientific theory. Is that, I think that's, I think I, would you agree that that's pretty much where it is right now? Oh, yeah, totally. I, I agree. With, I mean, I think dealing with, with science fiction is interesting because it basically gives you an opportunity to conduct a thought experiment about what may or may not be possible. And you have to marshal a lot of knowledge of physics and cosmology and astronomy in order to, to think about these questions. So, I, I don't know, I think it can provide a really interesting way of learning you know, how to apply knowledge about, about astronomy, don't you think? We actually got a lot of heat as well for the two episodes we did on the Drake equation and, yeah. and the Fermi's paradox. Yeah. But I, we saw it as a teaching tool, yeah. right? We said, let's go through each piece of the formula and, and what does it mean? How, what do we know about the possibility of, of the number of stars in the universe? And as you get near the end, it, it all just falls apart, which is fine. You know, no one's saying it's, it's going to actually predict anything. Yeah, one of the weirdnesses that I've never been able to understand is there are people out there who take their, there are not UFOs visiting the planet Earth to the extreme of saying, you can't possibly think there's an alien anywhere in the entire universe. Well, the universe is a big place. And I think that it's completely rational to discuss the possibility of life on other worlds. There's a lot of other planets out there. Well, at the same time, just sort of going, oh, dear, no, Roswell, it really wasn't Little Green Men. It's okay. Move on. They're, they're not the same discussion. It's really two completely different fields of science and non-science. Absolutely. I mean, there, there is, in fact, no reason to think that the Earth is unique or privileged, that life can or did only occur here. Yeah. And I think um, one of the great things about science right now and the missions that are going up is we actually are within, I think, striking distance to start answering that question, Mm -hmm. both with the SETI project, which is listening for signals from other worlds, but there's some new missions on the books. There's the Terrestrial Planet Finder, uh, which has been, which is on hiatus, but there's ESA's Darwin project, which is a telescope capable of, of seeing, measuring the atmosphere on Earth-like, Earth-sized planets going around other stars. So remember there was this recent discovery of Gliese 581c, which was this Earth-sized world in the habitable zone of a nearby star. Something like the Terrestrial Planet Finder or Darwin could look at it, see oxygen in the atmosphere of the planet, and that would essentially be a slam dunk for life. Mm Mm-hmm. Right, or methane, or something that's unstable unless mm-hmm. it's being generated in an ongoing process, you know, presumably life. And then we're also finding, we've got the rovers going, the new class of missions going to Mars. Mm-hmm. There's going to be the, the Phoenix lander, which is headed out in August, which is going to land on Mars up in its, its uh, northern pole, dig into the dirt and search for evidence of, uh, I think it's going to be searching for, for current evidence of water ice near the surface. Oh, I don't think it's equipped to look for life this time around. But then there's a science laboratory which is going to be coming out, I think, in another three or four years, which actually will have the ability to look for life. So on all these different fronts, 
we're so close to actually looking for life and not looking for UFOs. And NASA's in the process of a really neat test right now where they've built an underwater explorer that is um, a test critter, a test submarine critter. I'm referring to a robot here as life, which is stupid, but it's cute. Um, and they're, they're figuring out how to explore the liquid hopefully water Europa? yeah on Europa and to test out uh, their technology they're exploring they, they say it's called a bottomless uh, cenote I'm not sure if that's the correct pronunciation a big hole in the ground in Mexico that no one has ever managed to get to the bottom of and they're getting live feeds of what is it underwater in this part of our own planet we've never explored and if this works, then at least we have a starting point on how, how do we explore Europa when we get there in the future. Yeah, the next difficult thing would be how do you bore through miles of ice just to get to the, uh, the liquid center? That would be cool. I hope, we, I hope we do that sooner than later because I think that you know, finding life in our own solar system, especially if it um, had evidence that it, it arose independently of life on Earth, that they were not mutually seeded or something – would would be incredibly cool and certainly would raise increase the probability of finding life elsewhere. I think Europa is one of our best can- is the best candidate uh, beside in in, the, in our solar system. The, all the ingredients seem to be there. You've got you know the the heat created by the tidal forces of uh, of Jupiter, and you've got minerals. You've got a liquid environment. I mean, there's not much more you need. No. And I think, as Stephen said, the big question is. Is it all connected? Because there's a, there is a lot of evidence that microbes can sur- well microbes can survive in space in vacuum. They found microbes on uh, spacecraft on the moon. So there are asteroids that strike various planets in the solar system and can uh, move from planet to planet. We had the Mars meteorite. There's lots of there are meteorites yeah. from Venus and and the moon on Earth, and it, scientists think that meter, uh, life could my, microbes could survive the trip through reentry. So there's a real possibility that there could be, for millions of years, asteroids smashing into planets, kicking up meteorites, meteorites are landing on different planets, life's on board, lands in water, starts a new colony in the, in the new location. So I think either way, if we find nothing, that's very interesting – kind of sad but interesting if we find life that's that has a common ancestor that's very interesting because it means that life's been has been shuffling around mm-hmm. for millions of years already and if they find something that's completely different that's also really interesting and i've even seen theories that 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 the solar system leaves a wake of particles in its uh in its trail as it goes around the galaxy and could be littering stars behind us with uh with microbe laden meteorites as well so there's you know that's where a lot of this is going to get very interesting yeah it's basically the uh panspermia model that life basically gets seeded throughout the whole galaxy and we could be related distantly to life even in another solar system because of that Gliza 581 that's been in the news, uh, the star on the planet Gliza C. Um, just one thing that occurred to me was that since Gliza C was about 13.3 times closer to its sun, uh, even though the sun was about, I think, a third the size of our sun, a third the mass, uh, it just occurred to me that the, the tidal forces would be gargantuan. And uh, yeah. I tried to do a calculation, and I came up with like 240 times 
the tidal forces that uh, we experience from the uh, the sun moon system and and I, I would think that would almost preclude life on the planet I mean how big would the tides be on a planet with tides two hundred and forty times bigger than what we experience <laughs> or well, you're definitely looking at a system where it very rapidly became tidally locked to the star. So just as we see the same side of the moon all the time, within a very short period of time, and I haven't actually done that calculation yet, um, Gliza, if it hasn't already, it will be locked to its sun. Um, this will help. It's it, Without the rotation um, the planet mm. can stay contorted in a systematic way. But there's the other issue of it can actually raise tides within the star at a certain level. This is a small planet, so it's it's not going to be doing anything too terrible. But when you get the extremely large hot Jupiters very close to their central stars, the stars and the planets are going around at different rates, and you can end up raising tides in the stars that affect how the stars' convection layers work and other sorts of neat wow. things. Wow, that's neat. I didn't think of that. It seems that so far we're still mainly finding relatively large planets. Well, this is the smallest one so far, but they're all pretty close to their stars, and, and that's an artifact of the techniques that we're using, Correct. It's it's 100% an artifact. I, we don't yet have the technology to find the smaller planets at Earth-like distances away from sun-like stars. Darwin will get there. And when's that um, going up? I believe 2012, 2013 was when it was slated for. It's not in the too distant future. Okay. It's a uh, partnership. Corot is already up and has already found its first transiting planet. So five or six years so, from now, we could start finding a lot of truly Earth-like planets. It's a goal. All we have there's going to be a handful, yeah, of of missions coming out between now and then as well. There's the uh, Sim Planet Quest. Oh, I don't have the all of them in my head, but I but there's a probably about three or four missions between now and then, as well as the James Webb Telescope, which will be able to participate in that. So. Now these are all these are all satellites, right? Mm-hmm. The the one exception is now that we know that little tiny stars, the red dwarfs, have planets going around them. The HARPS uh, extremely high resolution spe- spectroscope down um, in La Cille, Chile, uh, it's on a one point something meter telescope run by the European Southern Observatories. It's capable of finding these Earth-sized planets around small stars. This is the neat exception is if you make the star small enough, you can start seeing small planets at reasonable distances. Well, uh, Fraser and Pamela, it was wonderful having you on the Skeptic's Guide. It's really interesting talking to you about all these topics. Thank you. Our pleasure. Anytime. Yeah, I mean, astronomy is a great topic. It's definitely like one of my favorite sciences outside of my own specialty. Because there's just so much astronomy news going on. There's so much discovery going on with really pretty pictures. So it's, it's fun. It's always that's fun. That's the advantage. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's what makes it so easy. Yeah, it's great. So there's definitely you know a niche for uh, podcasts like yours, like Astronomy Cast, and I think it's you're doing a great job of making science accessible, fun, and cool, and bringing it to the masses. And that's what we're all about, right? Thank you very much. Oh, thank you. And we'd love to have you guys back on in the future. Oh, of course. Yeah, well, maybe you can give me a hand with the uh, astrology and uh, UFO shows. Absolutely. <laughs> all right, guys. Take right, thank care. You. It's our pleasure. It's time for Science or 
Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts. Two are genuine and one is fictitious. And then I challenge my panel of skeptics and you at home to tell me which one is the fake. Is everyone ready? Two. Oh, yes. 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 All right. Number one, a new home buyer discovered the house's former owner mummified on the couch when they first went into their new home. Number two, molecular biologists have created a method for converting protein sequences into original musical compositions. And item number three, neuroscientists have successfully induced artificial memories in a mammalian brain. Jay, why don't you go first? Uh, okay, so we got the the first one you you mentioned was that they, somebody they, a house was bought and there was a corpse in the house. Not just a corpse, a mummy. There was a mummy. What, in where, what country was this? I in? didn't say. Can can you tell me why? What did Egypt. <laughs> I'll tell you why, because I know probably in countries like, you know, the United States and Canada and parts of Europe, the home inspections are required. And if it happened, say, in Africa, where I don't think... Okay, fair enough, fair enough. This one happened in, oh, let's say, Spain. (laughs) (laughs) It sucks. All right, moving on to the second one. Uh, The protein sequence into music, sure, some bozo would do that, of course, and it's probably... Pretty cool, and uh, I'm surprised that I, I don't remember reading anything about that. Are oh, you getting surprised now when you don't recognize these? Okay, a little cocky there, Jay. <laughs> How did that one get by me? <laughs> I don't think we could do that yet. That seems too... I, I don't like that one. I don't like the first one and the last one. Uh, the artificial memories, I don't, I don't think they could that, do it. So the artificial memories is fake. Okay, yeah. Evan? Uh, I'm going to agree with Jay that uh, neuroscientists have, have successfully induced artificial memories in a mammalian brain, and that is fiction. Alrighty, Bob. Let's see. A molecular biologist converted protein sequences into original music compositions. That sounds um, that sounds doable. Let's see. Inducing uh, artificial memories. I'm going to I'm going to kind of go with that one. So one, I'm going to go with the one that is false. As cool as it might seem, is finding the owner of your house mummified, the previous owner mummified. I just can't see how that would slip by everybody. Uh, that seems least likely. Okay. So I'm okay. Go with Rebecca, that. I disagree. Couch mummies exist. I'm sure of it because of all those people they find, <laughs> like in their homes, with big stacks of newspaper and the cats nibbling away at their bodies. Uh, so a couch mummy is totally within the realm of possibility. Protein music, that just sounds awesome, so I'm going to say that that is a fact. Neuroscientists uh, inducing artificial memories, I did see that before, but I'm pretty sure that that was an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, so I'm going to say that that's fiction. Yeah, that's sci-fi. <laughs> okay. Perry? The first one about the mummified thing doesn't sound right. You need like a pack of Egyptians or something to do. They can't just... If you're, if you're, <laughs> a pack a six pack of Egyptians. If you just... If croak on the couch you don't become a mummy you know Evan I just realized I don't have an accent or a funny voice for you need you know you gotta do that oh the second one sounds fine that's a good good point and the third one the second one is about protein sequences and music that sounds fine and the third one neuroscientists accelerate induced memories um you know that one's that one's pretty tough but 
you know, eh, memories are in there. You can get at them. You could change them. You bang your head. You know, you could. Yeah, I, I, uh, I, I think that one's okay. So I'm going to go with with number one, the, uh, the mummy. mummies, couch mummy, couch like, mummy. Okay, so so you all agree that molecular biologists have cre- created a method for converting protein sequences into original musical compositions. Yeah. I'll agree that that is science, and that is science. Yay, that is science. Yay. That's so nerdy. <laughs> yeah, it's so nerdy. Yeah. What they basically did was you know, create a, um, a scheme for translating the 20 amino acids that make up a protein into each amino acid has a note, right? So, you have, you, so that means every protein would be a 20-note score, essentially. This was done at UCLA, the UCLA's Molecular Biology Institute. They say every protein will have its unique auditory signature because every protein has a unique sequence. You can hear the sequence of the protein. And they actually did this for more than just you know, whimsical or musical reasons. They think that it may help them identify patterns in the protein sequences because you might be able to hear the patterns. Your brain you know, might be able to recognize and decipher those temporal patterns from hearing the notes. And it might be easier to recognize than, say, visually, you know, representing the amino acids. Plus, you can always say, my proteins sound better than your proteins. <laughs> uh, th- this research was done by Rai Takahashi. He says, we assigned a chord to each amino acid. We want to see if we can hear patterns within the music as opposed to looking at the letters of the amino acids or protein sequence. So, very interesting. And then they went to bars and asked beautiful women if they could make music together. Right. right. Oh, let me take a look at your protein, baby. <laughs> Those UCLA <laughs> students. <laughs> They're a wacky bunch. Hey, Perry, you see the protein on that front? <laughs> now, Bob and Perry, you both think that the couch mummy is fiction. I believe, unfortunately, uh, this one Couch has Mummy lives. <laughs> and this is one is science. science. Couch Real. Mummy lives. Oh, there's a Couch Mummy. If Home buyer finds eating potatoes modern and the TV, you don't just mummy become a mummy. On couch. Now, Perry, ordinarily, you'd be correct. Uh, but there are some differences in the conditions here. So basically what happened is this, this you know, poor old woman stopped sending in her rent checks or her, not rent checks, her her mortgage payments. So they killed so her. So eventually, <laughs> her. eventually she, you know, she forfeited her mortgage and the bank sold it off. It's like now several years later. Oh, that's sad. Um, she, the woman was reported missing. <laughs> Apparently God. no one looked in her home. <laughs> the or they did and they said, oh my God, there's a mummy in there. We can't go in there. <laughs> Steve, Steve, what about the smell? Yeah, really. This was, uh, this was, you know, explained away as, so, Rose's mayor, Carlos Paramo, told the newspaper El Mundo that it was normal that no one missed the woman because in housing developments like this one, people are not minding other people's business. Or their or stenches, apparently. apparently. <laughs> yeah. When the new owner walked into the home, he found her <coughs> mummified sitting on the couch. Now, the speculation is because this development is quite near the ocean, that the heavy salt air contributed to this mummification this natural, natural mummification mum. process. So she wasn't wrapped yeah. in something. It, her skin became like no, it had a texture to it. through her nose. She got so I guess infused with the salt from the from the ocean air that her her yeah. flesh didn't decay. Was she smiling? What? Uh, she she smiling. pulled a Jerry Falwell. She just dropped yeah. dead in the middle of her situation. I think. I think there's a rumor that the, her TV was set to the same channel that the view. <laughs> uh. 
Now, the, cor- the coroner's estimate one, Bob. that her remains were there since 2001. Wow. wow. Oh, my God. That's so that's maybe that's why cool. nobody smoked it. Cool. It's terrible. Then maybe it prevented it from giving off its horrible odors that it no- otherwise right, it would, would not have, have decayed as much. It would not have... Would not have stank. Rebecca, let's take a death pact with each other right now. No, Jay, I'm not going to marry you if we're not both no. dead by <laughs> no, not a marriage no, no, proposal. No, no, Even in death, death, moment proposal. of death. <laughs> it's a death proposal. Oh, then yes, that I will kill you if you're not dead by 40. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Dead by dawn. No, you know what you I'm talking about. You have to get your head frozen, Rebecca. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jay, Jay's going to get his head frozen, then we can mummify the rest of his body. <laughs> so when they reanimate you, Jay, you'll have your mummified body there. Oh my god! That would be cool. Creepy. <laughs> that would be so. Cool. I remember touching that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Which means that neuroscientists have successfully induced artificial memories in a mammalian brain is fiction. That's right. There is no Crap, such thing I as a mammalian brain. You, you must have you tweaked yes, it. Yes, I you? did tweak it. So what what really happened Bastard. was neuroscientists have successfully imaged the anatomical changes that occur with oh. memory formation. So, yeah, that's, that's it. it. So you knew it sounded familiar. So this is uh, UC Irvine researchers reveal first images of brain changes associated with memory. So they actually show changes in the size and shape of the synapses, be- the connections between neurons that are involved with forming what's called long-term potentiation. So that's a long-term or permanent changes in the connection between neurons or brain cells, that is the substrate of memory. Uh, and they think that this, in, this basic science information, you know, of course, doesn't have any immediate applications, but this, newer, this new understanding may lead to a better understanding of, of memory disorders like Alzheimer's disease, for example. What's that now? Or Huntington's disease is another one that was specifically mentioned. And even maybe even disorders like ADHD. So anyway, based the bottom line is the more we learn about exactly how the brain functions, the more we'll be able to think about and, and approach treating uh, brain diseases. So pretty cool. The pictures are very are very cool. I'll have the link. Not of course, nearly today. as cool as the mummified woman on the couch. The couch mummy's cool too. That, that's like that. much cooler. Uh, by the way, guys, I was going to use another item for my science or fiction, but then one of our very helpful listeners emailed this piece to everybody. Cool. So. Uh, so I knew you all saw it. That I was going to use the um, the fruit flies have free will. Oh yeah, that was that? cool. Oh, <laughs> yeah, of course I you did. It was emailed to everybody, <laughs> so I couldn't use it. No, I read it. I read it. I saw. Yeah, it I know. Well, it was also kind of all over the place, so it wasn't a very wasn't a very stealthy uh, item. But based, but this is a cool one to talk about very quickly. This is uh, you know, researchers looking at fruit fly behavior and trying to model the, the behavior. Like if they're flying against a window, what's the, what their, what does their flying pattern look like? And they basically determine that it's not repetitive. It's not random. Uh, there there seems to be some purpose to it that that is that is not random and what they basically f- figured out is that you know somewhere in the, in the fly's mini brain there's there's a method for generating new behavior for new like a new like saying here's here's a new flight pattern let's give this a try so as a way of uh, of basically generating new behavior when they run into a roadblock so that they have a chance of, I guess, working their way out of it. And and this is now where it gets to a little bit of speculation, but they're thinking that whatever this mechanism is for generating sort of new internal you know behavior or thoughts may be how brains actually produce non-deterministic activity, basically free will. 
and we've you know we've talked about free will on the show with with several people before you know with Susan Blackmore uh, for example um, and there are many of those who think that because of you know our brains are physical matter deterministic that that precludes the notion of free will and this is an interesting concept of would this you know ability to sort of just generate these this novel uh, novel thoughts or behavior that we could then sort of run with uh, if you will it, could that rescue the notion of biological free will? I don't know. I have to think about it some more. It's interesting. Probably not. Okay, next. <laughs> next. So anyway, congratulations to uh, Jay, Evan, and Rebecca. Good, good work. Thanks, Don. Thank you. Uh, Evan, can you please tell us last week's okay. puzzle? Okay. In a skeptical context, if I've been cut up and cured, what has happened to me? <laughs> and the answer the- is... <clears throat> Yeah, the answer is um, that I have been, and this is a real word, I looked it up, acupunctured. Acupunctured. Yes. How do you know? No. I thought it was, I thought it was uh, bleeding. No. no, it's not. And um, the, the main clue here, obviously, it's an anagram. Cut up and cured is an, is an anagram for uh, acupunctured. Acupuncture. Oh, you sneaky! Yes, little I know it was kind of yeah. short and quick, but uh, it was just too cool to when I f- discovered that cut up and cured was was a uh, was an, an anagram. anagram that was so cool. Did anybody win? No, nobody won. I won. So put me. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess congratulations! I thank you, thank you. <laughs> that was quite a puzzler. So, what is the puzzle for this week? The puzzle for this week is the following. Uh, this week's puzzle uh, comes from a listener. Uh, Angus Dorby submitted this puzzle for our pleasure, so I hope you all enjoy this. Remember me, for memory is our finest art. In Einstein's steady thoughts, I shared his greatest mistake in my simple way. I was worlds apart from those who took me. Removed from water, through flame, I was transfigured to metal leaving the aborning odor of SETI. And SETI is S-E-T-I. Correct. Search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Okay. So Very interesting. Go ahead and twist very your brain. Very long, very long. Twist your brains around that one and send in your answers. Good luck, everyone. Thank you, Evan. Now, here's an update for everyone. Part of the reason also last week's puzzle was a little bit on the short side i will should be prepared to present next week's puzzle in rap oh my. So next week huh? next Everyone week will be the big week i predict that next week's episode will be our most listened to episode to date oh that's for true. that very reason so we'll, we'll see if my prediction comes true <laughs> well perry last week you volunteered to take over the skeptical quote of the week Yes, actually, I fired Bob, so... Yeah, so how's that going? I really had no choice. Here's your Uh, debut. What do you got for us? Yes, I have a quote. It is as follows. Quote, Great intellects are skeptical. Unquote. Friedrich Nietzsche, 1844 to 1900, a German philosopher of some (laughs) note. Nietzsche. Yeah, I think I heard him. Very complete of you, Perry. Thank you. Great intellects are skeptical. It practically goes without saying. (laughs) You know... Um, before we sign off, I'd just like to plug a little thing I'm doing um, called the Public Radio Talent Quest. And 
it's basically American Idol, but for public radio to find a new host. So I'm hoping to win and to get a skeptical show on public radio. That would be awesome. So, and, and no, I will not quit The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Um, that would be terrible. That would be terrible. <laughs> Steve, <laughs> careful. Your range of emotion there is overwhelming. <laughs> Everyone can see how terrible it is by listening to the earlier part of this podcast when I was having technical difficulties and was sadly mute. Yeah, you were just quiet. <laughs> I'm going to vote for you, Thank Rebecca. you. In order to get into the second round, I need people to listen to my two-minute introduction and give me a good rating. So we'll include the link on the notes page. Please click it and register, and it's very easy. And just give me five stars if you like it, and you can uh, hopefully you don't like it, you can go good. to hell. <laughs> Hopefully one day hear a good skeptical slash sciencey show on the radio. I can't wait. Good luck, Rebecca. Good luck, yeah, that'd be awesome. Thank you. Well, thanks everyone again for joining me. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, good Steve. times. It's the least you could do, Steve. Yeah. <laughs> Until next week, this is your skeptic's guide to the universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by the New England Skeptical Society in association with the James Randi Educational Foundation. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. Please send us your questions, suggestions, and other feedback. You can use the Contact Us page on our website, or you can send us an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. Theorem is produced by Kinetto and is used with permission. Endless delays.